Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that we can boldly come to the throne of grace. We can come and pour our hearts out before you. We can come and seek knowledge and wisdom that, Lord, that we would walk in your will and your ways, and that is our desire today. We ask, Lord, that you would magnify yourself, glorify yourself in in this congregation. And, Lord, we ask for our community that, that they would come to know you and your name would be magnified here. We pray for those in Pune that your will will be done. Lord, that that the brothers and sisters will help supply those needs, will pray and encourage and build up and reach out. Thank you for the all that you have done for us and that you are still at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's read our text together. Beginning in verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, And to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all the steadfastness and patience, and joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in his inheritance of the saints of light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have. I've titled this message, Paul's Prayer. See, that's what we're going to look at is is prayer today. But more specific is Paul's prayer. He gives a description of how he regularly prays for the Colossians. He prays that they will know God's will and that God will give them the power to live it out. His prayer ends with thanksgiving for God's mighty act of deliverance and redemption. Well, the Bible's filled with many examples of prayer, and here's just a few. Beginning in the Old Testament, Job prayed for his friends. Moses prayed for Aaron, and Moses prayed for Miriam. Samuel prayed for Israel, and David prayed for Israel, and David prayed for Solomon, and Hezekiah prayed for Judah, and Isaiah prayed for the people of God, and David prayed for Israel, and Ezekiel prayed for Israel, and Nehemiah prayed for Judah. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus prayed for his disciples. In John 17, that high priestly prayer, and he prayed for you and me roughly 2,000 years ago. The Jerusalem church prayed for Peter's release from prison. Paul prayed for the Christians wherever he went. And Epaphras prayed for the Colossians. Well, let's begin in our text in verse 9. It says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, And Paul's referring back to what he heard from Epaphras. Let me show you in verses 7 and 8. Just as you've learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, 
who is a faithful servant of Christ on behalf, he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Epaphras was his eyes, his hands, and his feet when he could not be there. Paul goes on in a in verse 9, it says, and he do not cease to pray for you. Paul was praying for them all the time. I'm reminded again of First Thessalonians 5, verse 17, where we're to pray without ceasing. Well, that becomes confusing. It's a confusing passage for many. How do we pray without ceasing? For Paul, it was simple. As he went through this life, whenever he heard something bad or saw something, he reacted by praying to God and for that act in that situation because he knew that God cared. See, again, Paul went through life with open eyes, not tunnel vision. He went through this world, and every time he saw something, he was motivated to pray. Pray about what he saw. He didn't grumble. He prayed. He interceded. He interceded. And when he thought of it, he heard about one of his beloved churches. It moved him to prayer, and prayer always moves us to communion with God. And when we stop and think about it, when we see a crisis, when we see things going on in our family, it should move us to communion with God. We should cry out, pour out our hearts. When our hearts are grieved, it will move us to prayer. We see that example with Nehemiah. In fact, he's a perfect example of one who prayed without ceasing. After King Artaxerxes demanded a reason why Nehemiah was sad, he told him it was the destruction of Jerusalem. And asked by the king for his request, he turned to God with a quick, brief prayer before replying. In the midst of every stressful situation, Nehemiah kept his focus is conscious on God's character and God's purpose. Well, the question is, what is God's will? Romans 12, 1 and 2, define it every time. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, moving on in verse 9, we see, again, to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, there is true knowledge and wisdom But it was these false teachers that had great influence on the church of Colossae. They were bringing a false knowledge, a false wisdom. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, and draw away the disciples after themselves. Also in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, notice what it says. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons by the means of hypocrisy of liars, seared their own conscience with a branding iron. 
See, we are in the end times. Some say in the end of the end times. We do see that there are false teachers, perverted doctrines, doctrines of demons. We see apostasy, people falling away from the truth of the Bible, saying that the Bible really didn't say that. And really what it boils down to, I think Proverbs 1.7 makes it clear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice again, fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, what the church lacks is a healthy fear of the Lord. What I mean by that is that he is God and we are just man. He is the creator and we are the creation. He is the father and we are the child. We don't shake our fist at him and demand that he speak to us. We don't question his ways because we see his ways are perfect. See, fools despise the wisdom instruction. They don't want to know the truth that would set them free. And Paul's concern is for these Colossians, the influence of these false teachers. See, if the Colossian Christians were filled with the right knowledge then they would live and they would act in a manner worthy of the holiness of God. In verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Notice the very end, rather than according to Christ. People put philosophy which is empty deception, traditions of men, principles, elementary principles were above the things of Christ. See, that's why we continue in the, in the apostles' doctrine, focusing on what they have said, what the Lord actually himself has spoken through them. See, Paul was praying that the Colossians would have wisdom and understanding that only comes from God. Sometimes the world thinks they're so wise, they become fools. And as Proverbs says, fools despise wisdom. In verse 9, that word spiritual means given by the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at the results of wisdom. When a person hears again the knowledge and the wisdom of God, their lives are changed and transformed forever when they respond to it. Verse 10 in our text says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Now, the word walk is used in the Bible to refer to one's pattern of daily conduct. A mind controlled by knowledge and wisdom and understanding produces a changed life that's worthy of the Lord. It seems unimaginable that any of us could ever walk worthy of the Lord. But Paul exhorts time and time again to walk worthy of the Lord. Let's look at some verses together. First Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 says this, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
in Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in Ephesians 3.16 and 17, that he would grant you according to riches of his glory to be strengthened with all power according to his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, it's when we know what is pleasing. We, We have this knowledge of who God is and the knowledge of who we are. And we look to his word, he gives us wisdom. Now, the New Testament, again, is describing several features of this walk. And again, we're exhorted in each one of those. Now, understand, we're exhorted. When God exhorts us or calls us to do something, God will enable us. So how are we to walk? What does this walk look like? We're to walk in humility, walk humbly, to walk in purity, to walk in contentness. To walk in contentness. To walk by faith. To walk in good works prepared before the foundation of the world. We're to walk differently than the world. We're to walk in love and to walk in light. We're to walk in the wisdom of God. We're to walk in the truth. And when we walk in the Spirit, we will please Him. Verse 10 refers that being fruitful in every good work... He's speaking of a fruitful life, and fruitfulness is a result of knowledge. Fruit is the the byproduct of righteousness. It is a mark of every redeemed individual. John 15, 8 says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so as to prove that you are my disciples. So God expects us to bear much fruit. And this is how we prove that we are his disciples. Well, it's confusing again for many. The the Bible defines fruit in various ways. But the Bible identifies spiritual fruit as leading people to Christ in 1 Corinthians. Fruit again is is praising God in Hebrews. And in Romans, again, this fruit is is giving money. And Hebrews again is, is living a godly life. And Galatians uses it in displaying holy attitudes. Here Paul speaks of bearing fruit in every good work. How do we bear this fruit? And Jesus reminds us the key to fruitfulness is is really abiding in him. Notice John 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch can bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me, and I in the vine. You are the branches, and he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the key to being a fruitful life, walking in this knowledge and and wisdom, is abiding in Christ. Our lives are hid in Christ. See, spiritual wisdom is is the prerequisite for bearing fruit. James 3.17 reminds us, but the wisdom from above is pure. Then it's peaceable and gentle and reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and it's without hypocrisy. Well, growth in our knowledge of God, 
that's what we see in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. The result of knowledge, it's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is progressing in that knowledge of God, knowing him personally, intimately, just not knowing facts about him. Yet at the same time, we should be able to tell people who our God is, what he's done for us. Tell them about our relationship, how he he touches us and comforts us, encourages us. He builds us up. He provides our needs. He is our strong tower in a time of need. And nothing is too difficult for him. The knowledge of God is revealed in his word. And it's crucial for spiritual growth. 1 Peter 2.2 reminds us like a newborn babe, Long for that pure milk of the word so that by it you will make grow in respect to salvation. See, as babies are always wanting to be fed, we Christians should be wanting to be fed. As a baby longs for the pure milk of the word, we long for that pure milk of the word, but we then continue to grow and we grow into the bread and the meat of the word. And notice at the end of verse 2 it says, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Second Peter 3.18 says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and the Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. See, being saved is not about saying a sinner's prayer and just going to heaven. It's growing and the grace and the knowledge of who the Lord Jesus Christ. It's growing in a relationship with him that becomes richer and richer and richer. That we walk in in this knowledge and wisdom. We grow in a deeper love for God. We grow in a deeper love for his word. In fact, that's a mark of spiritual growth. Let me read Psalms 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is a meditation of the heart. See, a person that knows the Lord, that loves the Lord, will grow in their love for him and his word because they find comfort, they find strength, they find guidance. Philippians 1.9 says this, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge, true knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of his will for you and me in all discernment that we recognize what is right and what's wrong, where God is leading when he's not. Well, notice again, in verse 11, we see strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Well, believers are continually strengthened with all power throughout their lives in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to Acts 1 verse 8, if you remember. But we will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. See, they're being exhorted to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the day of Pentecost when the Spirit would come upon them. Now, they would receive power, the Holy Spirit come upon them. This is the power, the epi experience is called. It enables you and me to do exactly what God has called you and me to do. And to think you don't need his power is a fool. We need him every single day. Romans fifteen thirteen says this. 
Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing and that you will bound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is not a a switch that you turn on and off, but the Holy Spirit indwells your life. He quickens to your mind those things that you need to pray for. He intercedes when you can't even get the cries out of your heart. He's the one that enables you to walk that straight and narrow path that leads to life. Well, knowledge also produces something. Notice with me in verse 11. It produces all patience and long-suffering and with joy. Paul gives one of the last results of true spiritual knowledge. It's joyous. It's in the endurance of trials. The knowledge of God's promise and purpose revealed in Scripture gives us the strength to endure and press on no matter what we're going through. In Acts 16, 25, perhaps you remember when Paul uh, is in prison. And it says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns and praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Beaten, yes, but they were praying. They were singing hymns. They were praising God. And everyone was listening. What a powerful testimony. What a powerful witness. See, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you've been seeking God, you can't help but overflow and overflow in prayer in hymns and praise to God. Well, there's one more thing I want to call your attention to. That's our inheritance. It's also in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. 1 Peter 1.4 says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So this inheritance, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. And it will not fade away. It's reserved for us in heaven. Well, notice again the contrast, though. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, we have this idea that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly walked in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. See, there was no inheritance there. But our inheritance, when we come in Christ, we have a future. Those who are blinded by the God of this world, their only future is being tossed in that final pit in the day of judgment. See, there was a time in our lives that you and I were blinded by the God of this world. When we would look at God, God was our judge. This is before salvation. We stood condemned before him. Because we had violated, just like in Ephesians 2, violated his holy and just laws. But when and through the grace of God, we placed our faith in Christ, God ceased from being our sentencing judge and he became our gracious father. See, in a sense, God has snatched us out of the mire, snatched us out of the fire, set us apart for him. God has by his grace qualified the unqualified. That was you and me once too. 
to share in the inheritance. Now that Greek word for qualified means to, to make sufficient, to empower, and to authorize. God qualifies us through the finished work of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And it's apart from God's grace through Jesus Christ, all people would be qualified only to receive his wrath. A person must put his trust and faith in Jesus Christ and receive the grace of God. Look again at verse 12. And has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The saints' inheritance exists in a spiritual realm of truth and purity where God himself dwells and is a synonym for really God's kingdom. So often people are thinking, God wants me to be rich. They're focusing on all the material, but these blessings, this inheritance, man, it's, it's spiritual. It's in God's kingdom. While we have begun to step in, only experiencing a small amount, the best is yet to come. Look on the screen with me. Matthew nineteen twenty nine says this, and everyone who has left his houses or his brothers, or his sisters, or his father, or his mother, or children, or farms for my namesake, will receive many times much, and will inherit eternal life. See what all this inheritance is about? It's eternal life with eternal king forever, in a world where there's no sin, pain, or sorrow. I like what Romans eight sixteen and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. God has given us his spirit. This is the seal, the promise. And he confirms in our heart that we're children of God. He changes us. He transforms us. He gives us different views. He convicts us of our sin. He leads us in prayer to the Father, to the Son. Look at verse 13 with me. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Here, the word delivered means to draw to oneself, to deliver refers to the believer's spiritual liberation by God from Satan's kingdom. He's snatched us out. He's drawn us to himself. In fact, when that happens, 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature and old things pass away and behold, new things have come. Believers do not need deliverance from dominion of sin or Satan just need to act as if they're delivered. In fact, it's very clear in Romans 6, and I encourage you to read it. In Romans 6, 7, it says, For he who has died is freed from sin. We are set free. When we know the truth, it sets us free. We're no longer under this bondage of sin. We no longer have to sin. In fact, Romans six eleven says this, Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Just as this body is going to one day die. I know it's like a chicken running around with its head cut off. It's going to die. Now I need to tell my 
my emotions, my fleshly desires, I am dead to sin and I'm alive to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The power of the Holy Spirit will direct you and guide you and set you free day by day. Look at 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than is in the world. You know, the Holy Spirit, God himself, Christ in you, is greater than the world. When Satan comes knocking on your door, the temptations knock on your door, just let the Spirit of God and Jesus deal with it. See, we're overcomers. How? By his death. Jesus crushed Satan and delivered us from the dark domain. And he's transferred us, really, into the kingdom of his Son. Look at verse 13. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his Son, of his love. Romans fourteen seventeen says this, for the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a change. Why some people are living for the next meal, living for a drink, the kingdom we're in, it's about righteousness. It's about purity. It's about holiness. It's about peace. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. We experience a joy we never experienced before we came to Christ. A kingdom, in its most basic sense, is is a group of people who are ruled by a king. We have a king, King Jesus, and we want to walk in a manner worthy of his glory. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, so that you walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's called us. He, He wants to have relationship with us. He wants to walk with us day in and day out in communion, in unity, in oneness of heart. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says this. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgments so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Sometimes there's suffering in this kingdom, suffering in this life, but there can be joy and there can be peace because we know that God is in control of the outcome of these circumstances. A kingdom in its most basic sense, as I mentioned, is a group of people ruled by a king. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says this, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service and reverence and awe. Powerful. A kingdom which not, cannot be shaken. And we owe him gratitude. And this is our acceptable service with, with reverence and awe. When I talked earlier about that idea of the a healthy fear of God has a reverence, he is God. And we are walking on holy ground. We're walking in his presence. In fact, every time we think about God, we, we should be in awe of him. When we look at his creation, We can't help but be in awe of him. Look with me in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Three ideas are involved in this doctrine of redemption. Now, the word doctrine just simply means teaching, the teaching on redemption. The first one is paying the ransom with the blood. That cost, that bondage that we're under, 
we were in slavery, was paid by the blood of Christ Jesus. The second thing he did was remove from the curse of the law. We have been removed from the curse that was on us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus took your curse and my curse upon him. That you and I would have life. We would be redeemed by his blood. We would be set free to worship him in spirit and truth. We've been released, the third thing, from the bondage of sin into a freedom of grace. We're not under the law in the sense of of all the laws of, of the Old Testament, but we're under the law of love because he's changed our heart. This love motivates us to do what is right, what is pleasing. Redemption, it's very important to understand, is always through the blood. Through the death of Christ Jesus, the moment a person takes Jesus Christ out of the picture, the Jesus Christ who died on the cross, the God-man, the second person of the God, they have just separated themselves from salvation. Ephesians 1, seven says this, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to riches of his grace. See, there's no salvation apart from Christ Jesus. Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he's removed our transgressions from us. See, when Jesus redeems us, we have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. We put our faith and trust in a, in a risen Savior who died for you and me. He then takes our sins and separates them as far as the east is from the west. Well, Paul lists five benefits God gives all believers through Christ Jesus. Number one, he has enabled us to share in his inheritance. He's rescued us from Satan's kingdom of darkness, and he's made us children of light. He has brought us into this eternal kingdom, and we've only begun to, to step into it, experiencing it only a little. It's our spirit that will be a part of this kingdom, and we'll receive bodies fashioned for eternity then. He has purchased our freedom from sin and judgment with his own blood, and he's forgiven our sins. We have much to thank God for what we received in him. Paul's prayer is a wonderful reminder how we can pray for, for others, for friends, parents, children, Christians, missionaries, pastors, but even more to thank our Lord Jesus Christ for all that he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.